What a joy to gather with God's people. Let me extend my voice to that of Pastor Travis's and welcome you to Woodlawn. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're grateful for your presence. It is our habit here at Woodlawn to take books of the Bible and to preach through them. Currently, we're making our way through the book of Exodus. And beginning next Sunday, we'll start the book of the covenants, looking at the giving of the law code, and from there move our way into the Ten Commandments. I'm going to preach one sermon that kind of covers all of the Ten Commandments, and then come back and look at each of these Ten Commandments individually. So we'll be studying this command, these commandments of God in the next several weeks together. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to look with me this morning to the book of First Peter, First Peter chapter 1. We'll look at three verses this morning, First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And every year, I give a challenge to us as a church to reflect upon a theme, to emphasize and to focus a theme. And this year, we're going to be emphasizing and focusing upon the theme of holiness. You might have picked up some of that in our singing this morning. And what a perfect character to reflect upon as we move into this revelation of God in Exodus chapter 19, as we see the law of God given, and there God is reflecting upon who He is and who He wants His people to be, and, and ultimately that defining characteristic indeed is going to be that of holiness. First Peter Chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. We often claim that America is indeed a Christian nation. You've heard this said on numerous occasions. Of course, we can go back to our founding and look at our fathers and see that even among the deists, such as Thomas Jefferson, there was a glad willingness to acknowledge God, or as often they would say, to acknowledge providence and understanding that God himself had led the people from England to this country to found this great country. The passion of these early American pilgrims was to flee religious persecution that they were enduring in, in England for a new country in which religious freedom, freedom to worship the God of the Bible, could be carried out by the dictates of one's own conscience and not be determined by that of the king. They believe this to be a true and good principle based off of the teaching of God's word. Proverbs 29, 2 declares, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. The founding fathers wanted righteousness to be pervasive in the American culture, knowing that the benefits of that righteousness would extend to all of culture. As we survey our own country, you don't have to do an official survey or have a PhD in American history to see that there's been a shift in culture. 
things that are displayed on television today, commercials, concepts, ideologies that are promoted boldly and openly were, were never communicated on TV. Culture celebrates certain expressions of, of sexuality that just 20 years ago, 30 years ago in the life of, of this country in so many measurable ways, they were shunned. Why, in all of our progression, have we digressed in the concept of righteousness and culture? Might the failure lay at the doorstep of the church? Several years ago, I remember the bumper sticker that was famous among Christians that read, Christians aren't perfect, they're forgiven. Christians aren't perfect, they are forgiven. For many, it was a justification for why Christians live their lives in a way that has no distinction from the world around us. For Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. More than 20 years ago, George Barna, a well-known researcher, said, quote, Christians fail to transform the culture in which they live because they are neither grieved nor humbled by their sin. In other words, we have completely disregarded Jesus' words. We have completely disregarded Jesus' understanding of Christianity and given ourselves over to an Americanized version of Christianity where we can claim Christ as Lord and at the same time enjoy the desires of the flesh. And yet, we hear the words of Scripture when John would write in John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is not, the only, this is not only John's message as it regards holiness. It's also Peter's message as it concerns Holiness. Peter, as you will remember, is writing in a very difficult situation to a church that finds itself under intense persecution. Peter is in large measure writing to this church to say to them, in light of everything that is going on in your life, and in spite of all of the intense persecution that you find yourself under, endure. Be obedient children. Be, be faithful to Jesus. Here in 
chapter 1, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, Peter reflects upon the foundation upon which he expects the Christian culture and church and lives to be constructed as they live their lives in intense pressure in a world that is everything opposite of the message that Christianity teaches, of the words that Jesus says, you be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Hear these words from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, completely, totally on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Notice the first thing that Peter demands or communicates here in this passage of Scripture in verse 13. Peter reminds us that believers must live their lives in hope of the second coming. Peter is saying to to this church, hey guys, Jesus Christ is coming again. And Peter's communication of this coming of Christ was an understanding that when Jesus comes again, Jesus is coming in this great glory, but he's also coming in judgment. A judgment that both believers and non-believers will experience. Peter is wanting you and me to live our lives in light of this eternal truth. Jesus Christ is coming again. That is our hope. How do believers in first century Christianity as they are tossed into the Colosseum and lions and bears are turned loose on them and they maul them to death at the applause of thousands of people, how is a believer to endure in that moment? When the Christians are taken and and placed on the stake and their bodies are, are lit on fire so that they might provide light as a pathway to the Colosseum, how are believers to endure? You see, Peter says, friends, if your hope, if your sight, if your mind, if your heart is set on the things of this world, on the pleasures of this world, believer, you can't expect to endure. Might it be that so many people are willing to, quote, deconstruct from from American Christianity is because their lives as believers were never constructed on the hope of Christ. Don't be surprised, as a hymn writer would write, that you're prone to leave the God you love 
when your life has never been constructed upon the hope that is in Christ. What does Peter say? Prepare your minds for action. Christianity is not a passive expression in which we pledge allegiance to a genie in the bottle, hoping that he will provide for our every physical need. No, Christianity is intentional engagement on behalf of those who love the Lord. Be prepared, Peter says, and set your hope. You guys know from a biblical standpoint, in the Greek New Testament, the way in which hope is used is so different than the way in which we understand hope today. We understand hope in a means of a wish. I wish that this might take place. I'm really hoping that I might finish the semester, students, with, with straight A's. I, I hope that this summer my family might be able to go to the beach for, for vacation. It's not a sense of certainty. It's a wish. But in the New Testament, a hope is a certainty. Uh, Peter's not writing to the church and saying, hey, guys, let's all get together and just really hope. Let's wish. No, Peter's saying, set your minds for action. Be ready and know with certainty Jesus is coming again. Is that where you are this morning, friend? Have you set your hope there? Have you set your focus there? This is why the writer of Hebrews would say to us, looking to Jesus. Who is Jesus? The author and finisher of our faith. Believers must live their lives in hope of the second coming of Christ. But notice what he says in verse 14. Believers must reject the passions of our flesh. We must reject the passions of our flesh. As obedient children, notice Peter's designation for believers. How are we identified as those who are in Christ? We are identified as being obedient children. Let's be honest for a few moments this morning. We really like to emphasize the children section, right? I'm a child of God. We really like to de-emphasize the obedient part. Why? Because the obedient part takes action. The obedient part takes engagement. The obedient part requires of me, as we will see in a few moments, to be intentional in the way that I live my life. I like the designation of being a child of God without the designation of being an obedient child of God, quite honestly, because I don't always like obedience. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your flesh. Notice what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me over in Ephesians chapter 4. It's not, only, it's not only Peter that is making this claim, it's also Paul making this claim. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and following. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. The Gentiles were considered pagan peoples. Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's only Peter that is calling you and me to reject these former passions, to reject the passions of our former ignorance. Paul himself is calling you and me as believers. Peter is writing to a believing group of people. Paul is writing to a believing group of people. He's having to remind them that you and I must live as holy men and women of God. So verse 14, he says it in the negative. Don't be like this. But notice what he does in 15 and 16. In 15 and 16, he states it in the positive. Verse 14, believers must reject the passions of the flesh. But verses 15 and 16, believers must be holy. Look how he says it. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, not only Peter calling you and me to a sense of of holiness, But listen to what Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be what? Holy and without blemish. Or holy and blameless before him. This is what Paul would say to the church at Thessalonica, who themselves, like the church here at Ephesus, is under intense pressure. He would write to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, and he would say to them, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. Where is Peter gaining an understanding that God's people ought to live holy lives? He takes us back to the Pentateuch. He takes us all the way back to Leviticus. It reminds us from Leviticus chapter 11. We'll flesh this out a little bit more in a few moments. He reminds us from Leviticus chapter 11 that God's demand and expectation of his believers is is that they must be holy. But where do we see this first demand from God 
for his people that they be holy people. Look with me back to Genesis. You'll remember the narrative as we went through Genesis in Sunday school not that long ago. Genesis is the recording of creation, this wonderful event that we see in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. But Genesis is also a call of of God in creating for himself a people. And he does that beginning in chapter 12 after humanity fells in Genesis 9, 10, and 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls for himself a people through the person of Abram. And listen to what God would say to Abram in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be what? Blameless. See, friends, it was the expectation of Yahweh, of God himself when he formed his people through Abram. That titular head of the people, Abram, would be a representation of of God to the people, but it wasn't only for Abram. We would learn as the Pentateuch progresses that would also be God's expectation for all of his people to walk in a very certain way. What is that way? A walk of holiness. What is holiness? You can Google a definition of holiness and Perhaps you can find definitions that far surpass my definition of holiness, but I'm going to take a stab at it for you this morning and give you a definition of holiness. Holiness is a characteristic God expects His people to exhibit. A characteristic grounded in God, given through faith, in Jesus, enabled by the Spirit, and lived out in the lives of believers that continually shows their connection to God and distinction from the world. Let me say that again. A characteristic that God expects of His people, a characteristic that is grounded in God, given through faith in Jesus, enabled by the Spirit, and lived out in the lives of believers that continually shows their connection to God and distinction from the world. Friends, holiness is not a character that you and I can work up. It's not a character that is a characteristic that is woven into the fabric of humanity at, at birth. It's, it's not something God gave to you when, when you were born. Born physically, that is. 
No, friends, holiness is only something that you and I can obtain by the gracious gift of Christ. It's a work of God in the hearts and lives and lives of his people. It's not just a forensic holiness. What I mean by forensic holiness, it's not just something that God has made a judicial declaration concerning. So for example, think of it in this way. Uh, think of holiness in terms of sanctification. That's, that's a theological statement that understands I am saved. As we think about salvation, we think of it in three ways. I have been saved. There was a moment in life when you were separated from God, when you were a Gentile, as Paul told us about in Ephesians chapter 4. But at the moment in which you trusted in Christ, there was a judicial declaration by a holy, righteous, good God against your life. And what did God do in that forensic declaration? He declared you innocent. But friends, God has not only declared us innocent, He's not only justified us, but He's also placed us in a position where we can declare, I am saved. That's the process of sanctification. And in that process of sanctification, we're not only understanding holiness from a forensic standpoint, we're also understanding holiness from an actual, or we might say practical standpoint. God declares us in that moment of salvation, but friend, God expects us through the process of sanctification to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in holiness. God has given to you and me all that we need for this characteristic of holiness to, as I noted, to be continually present in our lives. How has he done it? He's given it to us through Jesus. Enabled by the work of the Spirit in our hearts and our lives. And notice what Peter does back to our text. He grounds the call of our actual holiness through the authority of Scripture. He goes all the way back for us to Leviticus chapter 11. Now how do we get to Leviticus chapter 11? You'll remember where we are in the narrative of Exodus, right? We've been on a journey through Exodus, the nation of Israel, down in Egypt, they're they're in slavery, and Exodus chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25, Israel cries out to the Lord, and the Bible tells us that the Lord hears, and the Lord sees, and the Lord knows, and the Lord is going to take action on behalf of his people. And what does he do? He sends brother Moses to the nation of Israel. But Moses has a problem himself, doesn't he? He can't control his anger, so he murders a guy and has to spend 40 years separated from God's people in Egypt, but he finally comes back, and we see this incredible declaration. Moses' confidence in who God is, his conviction in what God has spoken, and so Moses boldly goes before Pharaoh, and he says to him, let my people go. 
We're now at the narrative in Exodus where the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They're now in the Sinai Peninsula, and they're about to be given the full revelation of God's covenant. And so I ask us this morning, what is the purpose of the Exodus and the Sinai covenant? What's God's purpose? Well, we might say God's purpose was to remove his people from Egypt. And in some way, you might be right. But we've not yet finished the narrative in Exodus, and we for sure have not carried ourselves all the way through. But what's going to happen in Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 40? We're going to get this elongated narrative defining for us the building of the tabernacle. And what is the purpose of the tabernacle? The purpose of the tabernacle was the indwelling of the presence of God among his people. So I'd like to submit to you this morning that the entire purpose of the Exodus and the purpose of the Sinai covenant is the tabernacle itself. The place that God would take up residence and be among his people in the middle of the camp. But what follows the giving of the law is that narrative in Exodus 24 and 25 of the tabernacle. And here... 75 times we see a word connected to the word holy, kadosh in Hebrew. 75 times from Exodus 25 to Exodus 40. Do you know how many times a derivative of the word kadosh was used from Genesis 1 to Genesis 24? or less. Don't miss it, friends. How will the nation of Israel know what they are to be and what they are to do? They will know it as they dwell with God in the tabernacle and come to understand His very presence. God is a dwelling God. God is one who is imminent among his people. He's not just transcendent. He's not just one, as one old German theologian would say, Rudolf Ott would say, God is completely holy other. We, we can't comprehend him. We, we can't know him. He is completely totally other. He is completely distinct from anything that we know, but he is noble. How is God noble? Exodus chapter 25 through 40, he dwells among his people. So we see this revelation of of God dwelling among his people, and then we get to Leviticus, from which our passage here in 1 Peter grounds its, its authority in declaring that God's people should be holy. Leviticus obviously is God's revelation to his people. That just as the physical tabernacle was required to show the quality of holiness. We'll get to it. 
all the ways in which God demands and commands a tabernacle to be constructed, how he demands and expects the priest to engage in the middle of that tabernacle was all for the purpose of communicating to his people just how holy he is. God wanted his people to understand it. Leviticus is God's revelation to his people that just as the physical tabernacle was required to show the quality of holiness, so also must the spiritual tabernacle. You and me so also must we show the holiness of God. So a little journey through Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 9 is understood as the manual of sacrifice. And here Moses is going to spend a whole lot of time talking about sin. But Brother Rob, the interesting thing is, he spends a whole lot of time talking about unintentional sin. Now, why would God spend the majority of Leviticus 1 through 9 talking about unintentional sin? One theologian noted, quote, the system is not intended for those who expect to break the covenant regularly, but still receive its benefits. The covenant that God would give to his people in, in Exodus chapter 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 and, and 24, that covenant was never given to a group of people for whom God expected to be continual violators of his holy, righteous, good law. No, God expected his people to walk in faithful obedience to his law. So he spends Leviticus chapter 1 through 11 primarily talking about unintentional Sins. Then we get to Leviticus chapter 11. And, and Leviticus chapter 11 through, through fa- chapter 15 is in some ways a showcase of examples. God wants his people to see through very specific examples, through object lessons, exactly what God means about holiness and how his people are to be completely distinct from the world around them. He's going to tell them it matters how you eat. He's going to tell them it matters how you engage in in sexuality. It matters what happens after a woman gives childbirth. It, It matters how the people of God directly relate to and engage lepers. There's a lot of object lessons for God's people to understand just how holy they ought to be in Leviticus 11 through 15. But what happens in chapter 16 and 17? Maybe the apex of the entirety of Leviticus. Chapter 16, we get the revelation of the Day of Atonement. In chapter 17, we understand the importance of the shedding of blood. Then chapters 18 through 22... Leviticus chapter 18 through 22 is what we affectionately refer to as the holiness code. And with specificity, Moses is going to give this revelation from God 
as God reminds his people, I want you to mirror your lives after me. If you want to know how to live obediently before God, friend, look to God. Be like God. Do as Jesus says. Be perfect. Why should we be perfect? Our heavenly Father is perfect. So we hear these words in Leviticus chapter 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 19, verse 1, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And here we learn the lesson. We must live holy lives for the simple fact we belong to God. And God is uniquely holy in His character and His behavior. We must exhibit the same type of faithfulness, the same type of rightness. We must maintain the same type of integrity. We must maintain the same type of goodness. We must maintain the same type of desire for shalom. We must maintain the same type of character as God. And this, my friends, is what Peter is saying to a church that is in a culture that in so many ways mirrors our culture. This is what Peter is saying to this church. You be like God. Verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you shall be... And if you... Call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is what God expects. This is what God wants of you, and this is what God wants of me. Say, Pastor, how do we do this? I'm tempted at at every turn. I work out at the gym, and three-quarters of the people that are at the gym are are three-quarters naked. I turn on the television, and all types of perversion of sexuality is continually thrown in my face. How do I avoid it? I, I pick up my phone and I, I click on YouTube and the first video that pops up on YouTube is a, is a video of a, a woman half naked. And before I know it, I'm, I'm on a trail of watching videos that lead to nothing but further debauchery, rebellion against God. How? How do we conduct ourselves with with fear 
throughout this entire time. How do I live this holy and righteous life? And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 exactly how we do it. Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to engage with this made-up person. Paul's having this conversation in his mind as he's taking us on a journey. He's going to engage in, in this conversation. He's going to tell us in Romans chapter 6, you cannot continue to live in sin. Does grace abound that we may sin more? How does Paul answer? God forbid. No. We can't continue to live on in sin. But chapter 7, Paul says, in and of yourselves, you will never overcome the power of sin. And to whom does Paul point as exhibit A of that truth? Himself. I'm the chiefest of all sinners, Paul says. But then the glorious revelation of Romans chapter 8. How do God's people persevere? How do God's people live in fear all the days of their exile? How do God's people walk in holiness as God is holy? He tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Friends, how do we overcome the power of sin? How do we live as holy, righteous people? How do we imitate the very character of God? Live by, in, and through the Spirit. As Paul would remind us, as we heard a few moments ago in Ephesians chapter 4, friends, we cannot go on living a life that is a consistent offense to God and His character and believe we are living with a right understanding of biblical salvation. As one theologian said, Back to the beginning of our conversation about our American culture, quote, the fate of the American church and the church around the world depends upon what it does with the biblical doctrine of holiness. Are you pursuing holiness this morning? Have you constructed your life, friend, in such a way 
that you're continually at every moment placing guards in your life that keep you on that straight and narrow path? Are you intentionally rejecting sin and living by the Spirit? Woodlawn, my challenge to you and to me is that at this time next year, we can look back in history. That's forward. We can look back in history. We can look in our rearview mirrors. And for every one of us, we can see a measurable increase in Christ-likeness. Will you join me? Will you join this journey? Will you hold me accountable? Will you allow others in your life to hold you accountable? Would you seek to be accountable? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace that you have extended to us through Christ. We thank you this morning, God, that one of the means that you've given to your church to live and to grow in holiness is the church itself. And so, God, we ask that as we look to Christ, as we look to one another, that in the life of this church, God, in the life of Woodlawn Baptist Church, would you increase the holiness of God's people? Would you, God, grant to us desires, holy desires, to pursue you, to know you, as Paul would write, to know Christ and, and him crucified? This is our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take a moment, friend, where you're seated today and just reflect in your own life? Where are you along this journey of holiness? Perhaps this morning, even now, where you're seated, you need to make a confession to the Lord. Would you confess to Him those areas in your life where you struggle with holiness? As you make that confession to God, would you ask Him by His Spirit to forgive you to enable you to walk by the Spirit? Would you thank Him this morning that He has given everything that you and I need to, to grow in holiness? He's
He's given, to, given it to us by God through faith in Christ, enabled by the Spirit that we might continually reflect the character of God. Friends, perhaps you're here this morning and you've heard this concept of holiness and as you look at your life, you realize I'm completely, totally opposite of that. And God this morning by His Spirit has has shown you that you're living opposite of this call of holiness because the work of Christ has never been applied to your life. You've never truly repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus and, and given Him your life. Perhaps you're here and you, you don't even believe. We would plead with you today. Would you trust in Christ? You will never image the character of God apart from faith in Christ. It's impossible. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. As we stand to sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. Maybe you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward to speak to one of us. Please feel free to turn to someone seated around you. There are plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like one of us just to pray with you. That indeed the truth of this text of Scripture might be evident in your life. We would love, we would delight in praying with you that God might increase holiness in your life in this coming year. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your, your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Father, we ask that as we respond to you now, our response would be pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?